Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome to Downstairs History. You can't miss it if you're in the UK at the moment. You can't miss it. It's on the side of every bus. It's on the side of every billboard. It is 1917. The gigantic new film from Sam Mendes. Today I'm lucky enough to have Sam Mendes on the podcast. This was a great chat. He, he's an Academy Award winner. He's a Golden Globe winner. Now he's been on the History Hit podcast. The finest of his accolades so far. Uh, we had a good chat about the movie, which I've got to say I thought was really good. I thought it was brilliant. I, I loved 1917. Um, I think it inevitably, like all war films, it sails a little close to cliche from time to time. But that's fine, because I think it will introduce a generation that will be unfamiliar with the First World War to that war on, on a gigantic, on an epic scale. It's an it's extraordinary film technically, and I think the narrative of choosing the particular moment in 1917 when there was a bit of mobility, a bit of fluidity restored to the battlefield was a very clever decision as well. I won't spoil the film, but it does talk about that moment in the beginning of 1917 when following the great Somme offensive of 1916 ending in November 1916 the Germans retreated on the Somme front to a pre-prepared defensive position which the British called the Hindenburg line. It meant that for a few strange days the British who'd been locked into their trenches since December of 1914 were moving forward through open country and as you'll hear Sam Mendes believed that would make for a better historical backdrop for a great film than endless positional warfare in the trenches. Yeah, you can see it on historyhit.tv, the new History Channel. Lots going on at the moment. Out doing a little bit of filming for them at the moment, so please go to History Hit TV. Use the code January. You get part of the January. You get involved in the January sale. You get to watch Sam Mendes for free if you use the code January. You then get the first month for free, and then you get the first four months after that for just one pound euro drachma per month. Pretty sweet deal. So go and check it out. And we're so grateful for your support as we try and build the world's best history channel. So here's Sam Mendes. I do urge you to go and see the movie. It is absolutely remarkable to watch and go and do it on the biggest screen possible. 1917. Here's Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure, Dan. I mean, the pleasure is all mine. This film is extraordinary I okay let's start at the end talk to me about your ancestor who we met at the end of the film last thing we hear about yes well it's dedicated to my, my grandfather uh, Alfred who uh, fought in the war from 1916 to 1918 arrived there as a 17 year old uh, chose to enlist um, and uh, never really spoke about it thereafter to his own children or his own family including my dad and then when he was from the West Indies 
um, born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and, and went back there after the war and made his life there, basically. I mean, he had periods where he was in other countries. Um, and when I was uh, a kid, uh, he'd retired to Barbados, um, and we would go out and visit him, um, uh, you know, as, as much as we could, which was probably once or twice a year. And uh, he would sit on his porch and tell stories, and eventually we managed to get him to talk, really. And uh, well, he chose to talk, I think, much to my dad's surprise and his brother. And um, he told us stories of what it was like. And um, he still, for example, washed his hands incessantly, even in his 70s, because he remembered the mud of the trenches and never getting clean. So um, it was clear that it was still in him, part of him. And the stories he told, none of them were stories of heroism or bravery or extraordinary acts. They were all stories of luck and chance and coincidence and how thin the line between life and death and how lucky he was to be alive when his friend who he went with, enlisted with, died standing next to him and just was hit by a shell and, and just evaporated. Um, I mean, there was nothing left to bury. So those, as to an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, were very vivid you know, and unforgettable stories, particularly coming from a grandfather who we associated as a very jovial um, you know, good-natured, theatrical, um, charismatic type. He wasn't quiet and introverted at all. You know, so it was a very interesting combination. And he was a natural storyteller. You know, he was a he was a novelist himself, um, and so he enjoyed telling stories to rapt audiences. And um, one particular story he told was the story of carrying a message across no man's land. He was a very small man, and. As he told it, the mist in the winter of no man's land used to hang around six feet. So they sent him because he couldn't be seen above the mist. And that was a very vivid recollection of mine. And that, for whatever reason, just wouldn't let me go. This story wouldn't let me go. It just, you know, these things hang around. And when it came time to write something or to think about writing something, that was the story I found I wanted to tell. And I couldn't exactly tell you why, except that I felt, um, I felt it felt somehow important. <laughs> What a privilege that you can take a story from your family's past and then spend hundreds of millions of dollars on it. I just think it's <laughs> yes. amazing. Yes, if everyone was given hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. to tell their family stories, we'd probably get some really good movies, actually. But, uh, yeah, uh, they gave it to me instead, so there we are. Well, I'm glad they did. <laughs> uh, now, um, let's... First of all, as a filmmaker, is the First World War a challenge? We, the, the, I mean, the galaxy of films about the Second World War. Mm. Is it mm. easier, good versus evil? They were bad. Is, the, is it harder to get films away? Is it harder to think of films? Is it harder to um, get, get them over the line when it's the First World War? Yes, I think it's partly because most films are made with American money and the American presence in the First World War was not large. Uh, whereas the Second World War, you know, if you watch Fame Private Ryan, to all intents and purposes, it appears that the Americans won the war because there were no non-Americans in the movie at all. But, you know, they feel very connected to the Second World War for good reason. And the First World War, not so much. So there's that. But also there's the nature of the war itself. The First World War is a war of paralysis in many ways. A static war fought in trenches and over 300 yards of land. Millions, hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives just over a tiny stretch of land. How do you tell a visually interesting story, uh, something that demands a big screen, uh, to tell a story in which there isn't that much visual interest? You know, it's just... A brown walls, a lot of mud, you know, and, and, and do people want to just bury themselves in mud for two hours? So it took me a while to work out how to develop this fragment of a story and create a journey that felt uh, epic. Um, 
But there is this moment in 1917 where the Germans retreat to the Hindenburg line and suddenly, uh, overnight, the British have no enemy. They, they have no, there's no one there. There's movement again. Too. Well, there's movement and, and confusion, as, as there often was in that particular war. Lack of communications. I mean, you've got a general at the beginning of this story, played by Colin Firth, telling the men that the Germans have definitely gone. But 200 yards later, you've got a, another senior officer played by Andrew Scott saying, no, they haven't. You're, you're an idiot. If you go over, you're going to die. So, and the, the men don't know the truth, and neither should you as an audience. And the truth was there was this 72-hour period where there was general confusion about whether it was a retreat, a withdrawal, or a surrender. You know, some people thought the war was over. And then they'd, got, they'd just gone, we won. You know, and uh, actually... History being written by the victors and all that, in retrospect, if the Germans had won the war, the Hindenburg Line retreat would have been one of the greatest manoeuvres of all, because they did it under cover of night, they took them six months, the British didn't know about it at all, and when they, as it were, revealed their line, their new 42-mile expansive line, it was three miles deep, unbelievable fortifications, you know, pristine engineering, you know, an incredible deep-lying, yeah, concrete and and deep-lying artillery, I mean, it was an amazing construction. And they'd compressed a very wide and less fortified stretch of line into this very, very, you know. So it's a very skillful thing. Um, but for this glorious moment, that, well, they, for this moment, they thought it was, it was a glorious victory. So there is this moment when the soldiers are cut adrift in this land that has been raised to the ground by the Germans. And yet it's the spring of 1917. So nature is also fighting to get back through again. And nature, in a way, is a character in the movie. Sure is, and, but what I, I, the minute as the history geek, the minute I saw the hint at the retreat, the hint, I, I immediately went, oh, that's what he's doing because you need to. It, it allows, as with sort of the great war movies, you can move through a landscape. Yeah. Through, you move through a story, but all a narrative, but also you're, you're look different things, towns, rivers, yeah. and it, that, the first one doesn't let you do that usually. But did you have a story that you needed, and you went to a story and going, you've got to give me, you've got to give me something <laughs> the Western Front that isn't just positional, attritional, nightmarish warfare. I need a little, I need something, and someone went. There's this little tiny bit here. Or did you kind of hear about that and then build the story around it? No, that was research. I was looking and looking for a way to have a journey that yeah. wasn't 300 yards long, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I had to... T- and, and, and unless I'd found that, I, I couldn't have made that. I wouldn't have written a script. I wouldn't have made the story. It was that, r- that realisation that there was that moment, that perfect moment, which is why, you know, the movie st- is played over one day and it's very specific which day it is. And, and indeed... That was the day that, that there was this confusion. They were beginning to mobilise to move up to the new German line, but some sections of the army had no idea what was going on, and that's what we've—that's the situation we come into. You know, you have this combination, as you know, in the First World War, the first you know war that begins with horses and and infantry and ends with tanks and machine guns and weapons of mass destruction, the beginning of modern warfare, but at the same time, no communication. No, there isn't a commensurate uh, degree of sophistication in communication. There is no way of telling someone. So, you know, even people 30 yards away from orders being delivered can't hear and die. And this happens over and over and over again. The sort of level of the awful perfect storm of the sudden development of industrial warfare and the lack of industrial level of communication is, is, is a hell, really. And um, so, so you're trying to find that kind of fulcrum uh, point where suddenly, through a keyhole, a keyhole of one man's experience, you're able 
to suddenly see the vast panorama of death and destruction. It, you know, the whole movie is based on the idea that through the micro, you can understand the macro. You know, through just two hours of real time and one man's or two men's experience, you can see and begin to understand the sheer scale of the war. Um, it struck me even on No Man's Land that the scale is not expressed going from the British line to the German line, because that's almost visible. You know, in many cases it was visible um, 200 yards away. The scale is best expressed looking down the lines, because that goes on for miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles. And sometimes you, you have to find different ways of looking at things in order to find a way to articulate the vastness of, of the chaos that was, that was the Great War. Um, because we're so stuck in cliches, so stuck in, in, in repeating images, you know, over the top die, over the top die, back in the trench, over the top die. I mean, you know, it, it, it's almost impossible to break out of that. And I was looking for a way to try to break out of that. But at the same time, we do have that. <laughs> you know, there, there, is, yeah. there are trenches, there is no man's land, there are people who go over the top at the end of the movie. So it, 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 but it's trying to unlock other areas of, of history. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, the, what, the, the, the technique that is so revolutionary and deserves every award in the book is, is obviously shooting it as if it's on one steady shot the whole way through. And what's so brilliant about that is it lends itself to the first of all, like no, nothing else. So you see the back, the, the rear areas, but they're all asleep in the grass and flowers and pop, you know, not, not poppies, but flowers yeah. having a nice time. And then they kind of get their stuff together and they go through the communication trench and, the back, and then they end up the front line, then they go over the front line and it's all a one And you see thousands of people and you do get that sense of, geographical scale mm. but um and i'll ask about the technical stuff in a minute but i have to ask every director that comes on the history podcast about how annoying are the historians when you wanted to do something did they go well it didn't really go like that and how do you ever rule them is does the filmmaking come first was history how important was history to you oh, very important i mean we had two historical advisors andy robert shaw and uh peter barton both of them were brilliant um, Legends. yeah and both different uh you know areas of spe- i mean they're both obviously no pretty much everything about the First World War, but they also had specific areas that I would sort of set them on, like attack dogs, you know. Andy would talk to the men, all the background about how what was in their packs and their kit bags and, the, you know, and, and how they used their weapons. We had another military advisor called Paul Biddis, who himself had been in the military but also knows about the First World War, who was training them and talking to them about uh, all sorts of psychological uh, elements to 
uh, what, they, what they were expected to do and, and what they would have been through just to get to the front line. Peter Barton was the one who pointed out, and he, I said, look, you, you, I want you to pick holes in this every way you possibly can. Um, and it was brilliant. And he made a huge impact on it because, you know, he, even if it's just, if it's just um, throwing a spotlight on cliches, you know, the men waiting to go over the top knowing they're about to die, he says, nonsense. They, most men went over the top thinking they were going to victory. You, you know, but that's a huge thing when you're talking to 500 background live, you know, just reminding them of that. Yes, they're adrenalized. Yes, they're frightened. But they're not knowing they're going to die. This is a myth. And that's something we impose upon it with the kind of nostalgia of hindsight and our knowledge of the war. and all. So, so, you know, th- there are those aspects. And then, you know, just ge- geography. Where is a coast? Where is the land? You know, how far would, would they, how much of a trench would they have been able to dig in 24 hours? You know, even en masse, all of these things. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of those things went into the script, went into the way that we approached it. Uh, we adjusted all sorts of details because of historical advice. So I, in a way, you know, it was crucial. But then, of course, there are things that I said, well, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to ignore that because, you know, film necessarily is a compression. And this is not naturalism. It's kind of poetic naturalism. You know, there are, uh, and, th- and there's a sense, and I don't want to give it away, but even though it takes place in two hours of real time, that time is at, at, at one point irrelevant. You know, Central character doesn't know where he is anymore, doesn't know what time it is, even if he's been asleep or knocked out for two, three days, you know. Um, and he physically doesn't know where he is in the landscape. So you don't want to be, you don't want to, liter- to be over-literal about distances and over-literal about time because the film operates in a, a dreamlike way at times as well, which is... Uh, you know, which is film, and, and it's not. Otherwise, I'd have made a documentary or, or written an essay. You know, it strikes me that you, so you had a you had a, a story, a narrative idea about this movie, and, and you wanted to get across the scale. But it feels like technically, you obviously what, the cinematography you wanted to absolutely kick on, and, and it, for me, it felt as big a shift as the first time I ever saw Saving Private Ryan when that when that uh, when that ramp goes down, and suddenly you see sort of bullets for the first time in film. You know, sort yeah. of whizzing around, and and. Talk to me a little bit about some of the techniques that you use and, and whether you must have pioneered. <coughs> did, did, did this film need it? Did the film, did your story, your script need you to make all these innovations uh, to, 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 to realise it? Yeah, the two things happen at the same time. You're, you're searching for a perfect marriage of form and content. You know, you, you, you want the form to match the content. And if you're telling a story in two hours of real time and your goal is to lock the audience together with the characters for those two hours, make them experience every second passing with the characters, take every step with them, then it seemed like a natural step to not edit, to not cut, to not give an audience any sense that there was anything except this single dance between the camera, the the uh, actors, and the landscape, which is the choreography that we're engaged in the whole time. But if you haven't seen it, I don't want... It, it, it's difficult to imagine it because... You know, I think everyone's worst version of that is the cameras sort of trotting along behind two people and seeing what they're seeing basically for two hours, and or or seeing their faces as they react to it. But the the truth is, it's a constantly shifting uh, movement from the subjective camera to the objective camera, from the intimacy of understanding their emotional reaction to what they're seeing, and also showing the landscape, the journey, the scale of the journey, understanding distances. 
And then there are this other character, as I said earlier, it's, it's nature. You know, this is a land that, yes, it's been raised to the ground largely by the Germans, but it's French farmhouses and towns and canals and rivers and orchards and streams and, and woods and, and the spring re-emerging. And so there's this other life that comes back into the film, which you also want to kind of pay homage to. So it's though that dance is an instinctive thing that you and the, you know, I, mean, I had one of the greatest cinematographers of all time shooting this film, Roger Deakins, and I've worked with him <clears throat> three times before, and this is our fourth time. And most of prep for us was just talking, 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 trying it out, talking again, storyboarding it, trying it out, talking, you know, and then an endless amount of rehearsals. Because if you think about it, well, you have to, if you write a scene that says they go from a quarry to a woods, down a hill, through an orchard to a farmhouse, that's all very well. But when you can't cut, the distances have to be exactly the length of the scene and the scene has to be exactly the length of the set. And only when you've measured it can you then start building the orchard, building the farmhouse, digging the trenches. You know, so you have to get out there on open fields before you do anything, holding a script, just marching up and down with a bunch of people sticking flags in the ground, saying, right, well, this is where the trench starts, this is where the comms trench enters, this is the left turn, this is, when it, this is the dugout, this is where they have the little fight. This is... And there were all these... So there were white posts marking the trenches and then there were orange posts marking events within the trenches... And the same for No Man's Land, German Dugout, etc. Uh, uh, right the way through the film. So, you know, if you ask George Mackay now, who played Schofield, he could walk the journey of the movie for you still, step for step, because it's so in his muscle memory. We literally did it for months because there was no way of moving if we, hadn't, if we didn't know that it was, you know, because if you build an orchard that's two times longer than you need, you've got a long scene with no dialogue. You know, you, you, they just run out of things to talk about. Or, if it's too short, they're standing still for a section of the scene because they're not, they, they can't move anywhere. So it has to be exactly the right length. And that was a really a, a challenge. And then rehearsals, those actors. I mean, as someone on, on telly, the, the stress of getting something wrong at the end of the scene, I mean, to go yeah, yeah. I mean it must have been awful. I mean, can you reveal how many takes you had to do in certain, or certain things? Or? Oh, we had to do you know, multiple takes, 30, 40, 50 takes sometimes. But, you know, these are eight-minute scenes, so that's a lot of you know, shoe leather and tra- travelling distances all the time. But the truth is that all the rehearsals in order to build the set and plan the, the camera rigs meant they were very, very familiar with it. And, and in a kind of way, that meant that they were living it by the time we came to shoot it, rather than acting it. And they, I kept saying, just ignore, don't think about where the camera is. Very occasionally I'll say, just in that moment, look over your right shoulder, you know. Um, and they would, you know, by that time they were so comfortable with it that it was easy. And then, you know, what you want, though, is this very odd combination of things. You want incredible precision in the camera work, but you don't want incredible precision in the physical movement of the actors. You want them to not be thinking about how they're moving, not be thinking about how they're being with each other, just simply being. So you want spontaneity in front of the camera and you want precision behind the camera. So that balance was always the most difficult thing because sometimes you know, it takes 10 takes to get the precision in camera, by which time they've done it 10 times and they've sort of lost their spontaneity. Often, the directors will tell you, the first two or three takes are the ones where you get the most electricity and sometimes you don't need any more than that. But here... That didn't happen very often, you know. There's no, there's only one scene which is a first take in the movie, you know, and um, but most of them were, you know, after sort of twenty. And so the job is then to keep the actors alive, you know, literally. and literally alive. But also, you know, if I, I kept saying, look, if mistakes happen, just keep going because some of them 
are just human, just, you're just a human being. You're slipping in the mud, you're falling over. You know, at one key moment at the end, near the end, <clears throat> one of the characters is nearly delivering a message and he gets literally knocked off his feet. Oh, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. Yeah, well, but exactly, because it, and I just said, if that happens to you, get up and keep running, you know, and he did. And it's in the movie. So those are happy accidents that you would hope for on normal movies, but you're able to kind of get that, those rough edges, really, which, which give a feeling of life rather than, rather than acting. Um, I could talk to you all day, but must let you go. Just on, on period drama, full stop, I mean, is this something you'd like to do more of? I mean, I, history geeks love it, of course. I thought Broken <laughs> Position was great. I mean, what is it, um, what, what did, as a director, what attracts you to telling big historical stories? Well, I'm not always attracted to telling big, no. big historical stories. I think that you know that there are the um, there are two camps of historian, as you know. There's the let's get it right camp, and then the let's make it immediate camp. And I think I'm probably in the let's make it immediate camp because, for me, one of the things that pleased me about the idea of this is that you know you don't need to know anything about the First World War. You know, you don't even have to know what what Christopher Nolan told you in Dunkirk. Okay, just so you know, the British are trapped, you know, the Germans are here, the French are there. You don't need any of that at all. It just has a date, that's it. And it's told in a very contemporary way and it's scored in a contemporary way. And we use all the bells and whistles of contemporary cinema, you know, surround sound and Dolby Vision, and you're going to be able to see it in IMAX. It's a big screen experience. And for me, that's the big challenge, is to, is to, is to somehow bring history into a place where you feel like it's happening yesterday. And, and, uh, and that's what excites me when I find something like that. Um, you know, you're also looking for stories that... some Movies need a mythic scale. You know, you, you need a mythic landscape somehow to tell a story. And it's one of the things that attracted me to Bond, you know, is that it's a, it's a contemporary myth, you know, really. And, um, and some historical periods have that and some strangely don't, you know. But of all the wars, this has the, the, the myth, the shadow of the Great War... Um, falls the furthest in a way. And, and the landscape, I mean, people, people can't really tell you what they're fighting in Normandy was like after D-Day, but they can, everyone can just sort of tell you what a First World War Vista looked like, I suppose, as you say. Yes, in. yeah. Uh, what other periods, what other periods <laughs> would you like to do? I mean, obviously, come on, 18th century, we need a, we need a big film there. Do we? Yes, absolutely. Need, right. need, we need one. Right. We need, we need. <laughs> It's essential oh, for our mental health. Yes. Um, I, I'd love to do a... a um, movie set in Shakespeare in England. I, I, I would love to. I'd love to feel like. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go back to that world of, of, of the Globe and the competing theatres. I, I, I think that era of Marlowe and the, and, and the spies and you know just. I think that whole era is fascinating. I certainly always loved that period. Um, but you know things come to you in odd ways and odd times, and you can never anticipate it. Um, and sometimes it's a, you know someone could be sitting there writing something right now that'll end up on my desk and I'll. And it, it'll just, uh, you know, it won't always be like this one where I sat down and wrote it from scratch um, and, uh, and I had the luck to be told it by, by my grandfather. So, no, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Wow. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.